But let's begin this morning. So we're just talking about the problem of evil. I'm going to jump into the last few slides here and then go to our new topic and hopefully, Lord willing, get through it all today. Let me open in prayer. Lord, thank you for our time this morning to study your word, to look at some of these big questions in life. Many times people have these questions within Christianity and without, and certainly when we speak to an unbeliever. Lord, give us the ability to remember some of these answers and how to think properly, how to think rightly. Help us to not only to, to know the basics of the gospel, which are so important, people can't be saved any other way, but also to give a good answer for the gospel, for the faith, for the reason that we have hope. And so I pray, Lord, that this class would build us up so we could do that and edify us as we study more and more on how to defend the Bible by using the Bible. So I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off last time with this question. So we're looking at the big picture on the problem of evil. The problem of evil is why is there evil in the world if God is all good and God is all powerful? If he is all good and all powerful, he should be able to stop bad things from happening. But since bad things happen, therefore the atheist will say there is no God or he's not all powerful or he's weak and and not all loving, he's evil. We know all of those are true, that God is all good, he is all powerful, and we also know that evil happens in the world. And we looked through the scriptures on that, we looked at the book of Job, we considered what the Bible had to say, and ultimately our answer has to be, it's all there to ultimately show us God's glory. And so that his glory would be displayed through the backdrop of evil, through the, the dark background, like when they bring a diamond out and you have a, the velvet black backdrop. You can see the diamond clear because there's nothing distracting you behind it. It's very obvious. And that's the answer we get in Romans 9. And so we've been looking at issues that sort of touch on that. And uh, this is one of them here. Uh, the previous question had to do with God's anger in the Old Testament. How could he command holy war? How is that right? How is that just? And we said he could do that because he is God and he is punishing those who are wicked. No one is good. No, not one. And if he wants to choose to punish the wicked, baby-killing nations that offer their children up for sacrifice, then he could do that. So we went through some verses on that. The same thing with the New Testament. God is also displaying his wrath in the New Testament. We see that especially in Revelation. So how can we enjoy heaven? Here's the new question today. How can we enjoy heaven knowing of loved ones in hell? Some would say, well, we just won't remember. We will not remember. That solves the issue. This is kind of the, the way that some Christians would answer this. The, the issue, though, in Scripture is there's still a memory of those who are in heaven and hell. Even if you don't take, Laz- take Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man as a true story, just if you take it as a parable, the truth still is there. There's this memory of what happened in this life, even after this life. So Luke 16 details Jesus talking about this man who goes to hell, the rich man. And he remembers Lazarus, and he remembers his name, and he remembers that he didn't feed this poor man at his doorstep, who was a fellow Jew, a fellow neighbor, that he did not show love towards. And this conversation can only happen because both have a memory of what happened in the previous life when they were on earth before they died and their souls departed to separate places. Let's go now to Revelation 14. And here, it's not a parable. And a memory of the 
life on earth has to take place for this verse to even be true. And so we're not going to forget when we die everything. We're not going to have it wiped clean. Would you even be the person you are if everything you knew and thought and had done was wiped clean? It's interesting that often sometimes we say we won't remember the people who go to hell, but we'll remember those that we want to see in heaven. Well, it's, it's going to be both and. You're going to have to remember both. That's not really the issue. The issue is how we think about that. Let's go to Revelation 14, starting in verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, and he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. And so you have this idea of people being tormented. Of course, they're going to remember what that's for. Is it right for them to be paying the punishment forever and ever when they don't even know why? They're going to recall that. You also have previous texts in Revelation where they're under the altar and they cry out to God, Oh Lord, how long? How long until you avenge our deaths? The blood that was spilled for the martyrs during the tribulation. And so there's a memory of what happened in their life and they're calling on God to make all things right. And he says in just a little while, he will indeed do that. The angels in Christ see the torment in Revelation that's mentioned here. So there's smoke, there, there's, there's things happening. And, and some even speculate, it is a bit of speculation, but Jonathan Edwards wrote about how even believers would be able to see this smoke. It's, it's somewhere, somewhere out there and the new creation. I don't know if we can go that far. He certainly speculated that that might happen. Others just say, well, here's how we deal with it. No one's going to hell. That's how you deal with it. You're never going to be sad because no one's going to hell. Or people are all completely wiped out. Universalism, we'll look at that in a moment. That's the idea that everybody's going to be saved. Annihilationism is the idea that people get punished for a little while. It's sort of like purgatory, and then they just are zapped out of existence. There is no existence. So those who go to hell maybe go for a thousand years and then they're gone. They're, they're no longer existing. That's annihilationism, not taught in the Bible. And then some just say, well, there is no hell. God is all loving. He would never create such a place. That is the whole message that we're looking at today. The third answer, and I think this is the best answer according to Scripture. How can we enjoy heaven knowing of loved ones in hell? In heaven will be clear of sinful thinking, and will understand the glory of God in judgment. The glory of God will be so much in our minds, in our hearts, that we will know things like, like God does in the sense, not that we'll know everything, but we'll understand why He does what He does, and we won't doubt it, and we won't question it, and we won't be confused about it. It will be for His glory. It will be for His glory. And we'll see the judgment of our unbelieving family members as more glorious to God that that judgment would occur, that he would be shown righteous than we would have any kind of feelings or emotions for those loved ones. Of course, you know, that saddens us to think about it today. It really saddens us to consider our loved ones going to hell. 
But that's why we need to evangelize. That's why we need to not miss an opportunity. The question is not what happens after we die, but what do we do now while we're living and while they're living? After death, there is no second chance. And so this ought to drive us to do what we can while we're here. And then when we're in heaven with the Lord and we know that there are some loved ones who did not go there, we need to glorify God and line up with his thinking because he is a good God. And if he's conducting judgment, that's for his glory, ultimately. Everything is for the glory of God. Revelation 6.10, and they cried out. So here's the, the verse I just mentioned. How long, O Lord, holy and true. So here are people who died, and some of them had their parents turn them in. When you read Revelation and you're thinking about the tribulation, there will be parents who turn their children in for being Christians. And the, the, the Antichrist and the, and the government of the world will punish them, will persecute them. This happened in the apostles' day. So to think it won't happen then is not consistent. It happened during the Apostles' Day. It's happened throughout church history. And it will certainly happen in the Great Tribulation. And they're, they're calling out, God, you're holy, you're right, and you're true. You will do what is righteous. And they, they ask, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So there's not a sinful anger here. They're not sinfully wanting vengeance. They're wanting vengeance for the glory of God. They're wanting God's name to be vindicated on the earth for this great persecution of God's people. Revelation 18.20 Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Rejoice. What is that? That's not be sad. That's not be upset at God. It's to rejoice. It's to celebrate. It's to sing his praises for what he is doing. And oh, heaven is, is, of course, the angels, but you saints and apostles and prophets. These are believers. Believers are to rejoice that God's name will be vindicated on the earth, over the whole universe, in his judgment. I've heard Christians say, you know, I don't want to talk about hell. It's, it's a hated doctrine. Sometimes they will be very sound in all their other doctrines, but they'll say, I hate the doctrine of hell. And they, they go on to say, not because God designed it, but because they hate the idea of people being punished. Well, I wouldn't say we're supposed to love the fact that people are being punished, but at the same time, we are supposed to line up with God's thinking on this and rejoice that his righteousness will always prevail. So on the problem of evil, I recommend these two books Usually we have these in our bookstore. John Frame, I've been recommending his book on apologetics in general. And he has two chapters on the problem of evil. He goes into some more ways that different belief systems handle it. We didn't look at all of those. Uh, two whole chapters on that. Great book, by the way. And then what about evil? 500 and, I don't know, what is it, 40 pages? Who's read The Problem of Evil? By Scott Christensen? Who's got the book on your to read and someday in the long term? 500 and something pages. We've met Scott. He's been over to teach a men's breakfast. He's the assistant associate pastor over at Kerrville Bible Church. And uh, Scott wrote this book a few years ago. And it is a huge masterpiece of a book that addresses all these different things in great detail. So if you want more information on that, grab that book, read about it, write a good review so the rest of us will be encouraged to read it as well.
Okay, today. So since we're on the problem of evil, and since we just talked about suffering and hell, let's go to that topic. Let's, let's look at the doctrine of hell. It is taught in the Bible. And you have to realize that when you do apologetics, what, what is apologetics? Who remembers a short definition? Short definition? Defense of the gospel. We could expand it to say defense of the faith, which ultimately is, is a defense of what's in Scripture. And what are we going to use as our main tool to defend the faith? The Bible. Not our witty, smart intellect. Not our PhDs or master's degrees. We are going to use the Bible. And what's the other tool that we're going to use? We're just going to ask questions about their belief system. And, and you already do this if you're talking to unbelievers. You probably are already asking them questions. It's just sharpening those two tools. The questioning of their beliefs and the application of Scripture to those beliefs and, and to proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Well, hell is a doctrine taught in the Bible. And this is a major stumbling block for unbelievers. You are going to eventually come across it if you talk to enough or read enough about what unbelievers think. And even within so-called Christianity, there is a great effort to do away with the doctrine of hell. And so we'll look at that. In other words, sometimes you're doing apologetics with somebody who's not a professing atheist. Sometimes you're doing apologetics against attacks that come from people who say, I am a Christian, but I do not believe in all these essential doctrines. And so you're not going to probably say first thing out of your mouth, you're not a Christian. You might say that. It wouldn't necessarily be wrong if they denied Christ or the gospel. But it might be better to ask some questions. Why don't you believe in the gospel? Why don't you believe in eternal judgment? Why don't you believe in hell if it's in the Bible? Because it could be that they're just immature believers. It could be that they got saved yesterday. And you need to show them. And, and what a success for the glory of God that would be if, if you show them a truth and they believe it because it's in the Bible. But oftentimes we find ourselves doing apologetics within the American church structure, the big umbrella, the big tent of all people who say they're Christian. We often have to do apologetics within that big tent. And there are many books, articles, conferences, and things on that every year. So that's who we're looking at here, people who deny that there is an eternal judgment. I like what Spurgeon said about hell. He said, if the sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one person go unwarned or unprayed for. In other words, this is not a doctrine we can set aside. We cannot say it's not an essential. It is an essential because if people who believe in Christ are going to be eternally glorified and blessed and with Christ forever and ever, the other part of that story, where unbelievers go, is also true. And you can't take one side of the coin and chunk the other. So you have to believe in both of those. It is an essential because we've seen it in Romans, haven't we? In Romans 1, 2, 3, as I preach through there, Paul says, look, here's why we need the gospel. Everyone is under judgment until they come to Christ. This is why we need the gospel. Jew and Gentile are under the wrath of God until they come to Christ. What does it mean if we take out the wrath of God, if we take out judgment, if we take out God as judge, 
essentially, we're saying there's no need for the gospel. There's no need for Christ. 2003, Barna did a couple of studies on this in 2003 and 2008. And then there really wasn't much in the, in the way of official studies since then. I guess it got too depressing. In 2003, 71% of Americans believed in hell. And 39% of the 100% surveyed said and agreed that it was a state of eternal separation from God's presence. Not bad. 32% believed it was an actual place of torment and suffering where people's souls go after death. That's biblical. 13, though, 13% said hell's just a symbol. So they believe in it, but they said it was just a symbol of an unknown bad outcome after death. So it's a bad place. That's all we know. We don't really know what's going to happen. 16% are not sure or said they do not believe in an afterlife at all. They did this study again in 2008. It had dropped to 59%. So in five years, it had dropped to 59% of Americans believe that hell awaits the evil person. Now, that's just the evil person. They're asking the question, just do you believe in hell? Not the question, do you think you're going to hell? That's going to receive a much different percentage of people who answer that. But at least uh, as of 2008, 59% of Americans believe that hell awaits the evil person. Often, though, they think they're not the evil person. Now, there hasn't been any published studies by Barna, but I did find where Barna has his research center and works out of Arizona Christian University. In 2021, he produced a report, and he said that Americans generally reject the idea of going to hell or some place of torment after their time on earth ends. Currently, just 2% of Americans believe they will experience hell after they die on earth. That figure has fluctuated between 1% and 2% for the past 40 years. So most of Americans, at least over the history of our nation, would say, yes, people are going to hell. But when you ask them, are you going to hell? Only 1% to 2% would even admit that, that are unbelievers. And so there's this idea of maybe it exists out there, but none of us are actually going there. It's, it's my neighbor. It's the guy I don't like. It's someone else I know. It's Hitler. It's Stalin. It's just for those guys. But they don't have the biblical concept of hell. So why are these things important? When you're speaking to an unbeliever about the gospel, what is it you're even talking about when you say the word saved? What does saved mean? Does saved mean that you're going to get everything you ever wanted and ever wished for? Is that what we do at Christmas with our kids? You know, if you, if you do presents and stuff, do you say, look, I saved you by giving you this. We don't talk like that. If you give a gift, that's just out of your own kindness. It's a blessing. But we're not using the word saved. Too many times in Christianity we think, Oh, yeah, everybody knows what saved is. But the Bible specifies, makes it very clear. We're saved from something. We're saved out of something. It's not just we're saved and forget about what that means. R.C. Sproul used to say that on his college campus, people would come up to him when he was younger and say, Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? And he'd say, Saved from what? He later wrote a book about it. And it would kind of freak out the evangelists at that time who were going around asking everybody, are you saved? Are you saved? And he'd say, saved from what? And they would have to stop for a second and think, oh yeah, what was that we're saved from again? That's how much the, the doctrine of hell is often pushed to the side. We're saved from the wrath of God. Not just a burning place of torment. That's the, the means by which God punishes. But 
that place is not a person, a personality. It's not a being. We're saved from the wrath of God as Christians. And that's part of the gospel message. That's the bad news of the gospel. What, what does it matter that you have good news if everybody thinks it's already good? Everything's wonderful. Everything's great. You have good news. I have good news. We all have good news. No, the bad news is you're under the wrath of God until you trust in Christ. Hell and judgment also declare the glory of God. So we need to remember this as believers, even if you don't speak it out to the, the person you're talking to. They may ask you, though, why is there hell? And these things declare the glory of God. They magnify His holiness and righteousness, His grace and mercy. People say they struggle with God who punishes forever, but they don't really have a problem with a judge who sends a murderer to prison. They don't have a problem with putting a rapist away from society. We all want a righteous judge on the court bench, but people don't want a God that judges them and judges the secrets of their heart. So know what the Bible teaches on hell. Let's do a quick overview of that. Hell in the Bible. We have two words on this slide, and then there's going to be some more on the next. But Sheol is the term for the underworld, the grave, the place of the dead in the Bible. This, in the Old Testament, this term appears to be generalized. does not have the same nuances of the Greek words we see in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, it's going to be more specific. But there is this idea of Sheol. And you'll remember the psalmist, and then Jesus says this is about him. You will not, he will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What's so bad about your soul going to Sheol? Well, that's a place of darkness. It's a place of punishment in the afterlife. Now, some will argue, well, Sheol sort of, it can mean different things. It can mean the grave. I think if you take the consensus of the Old Testament, you're only going to find maybe a few instances where Sheol is kind of debated. Almost in all the other cases, this is not a place you want to go. It's not a place that anybody wants to go after death in the Old Testament. So it's a dark place. It's not just death, but it's a place of abandonment from God. Gehenna in the New Testament gets picked up. This is Jesus' most commonly used term for what we call hell. And this is the expression of fire. It's a continual burning. Now, this is the old thinking on this, that it's a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. Uh, I don't know if that's listed in here. No, so, okay, so this is the right thinking on it. You probably heard, raise your hand, it's a trash dump. They used to throw trash out and burn it all the time. You don't want to be there because that's where fire and smoke is. There's actually no evidence of that. That comes about in the Middle Ages for the word Gehenna. It's even worse than that, though. Gehenna was the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament where these unrighteous kings would come out and burn their children in, in rituals to Molech. Molech was the, the Phoenician, Carthaginian. Uh, all of these people groups of the Mediterranean worshipped a god named Molech, sometimes Baal. Baal was just a more general term for their lord that they worshipped. Molech specifically, though, was where people would take their babies and place them on this statue, and there was a fire underneath his hands, and it would just burn the baby alive until the baby had died. And that was so they could be blessed. So today, you have the prosperity gospel where you, you give a, a tithe or whatever, and you're supposed to be a millionaire. Back then, you give up your baby to be burned, and you're supposed to be wealthy, happy, and successful. This is where that happened. 
And, and as a result of that, they are going to be punished, God said there. He's going to destroy it. And so this is where the word Gehenna comes from. And, and this is my, I'm copying from a commentary here in this quote. But it says, the valley came to symbolize the place of eschatological punishment. The Gehenna of fire. In other words, you know where you burned your babies? God's coming back and he's going to burn everyone there in the sense of there's going to be this fire that never is quenched, that never goes away. And so it wasn't so much a trash place as a place of wickedness and evil that God is going to punish. And so Jesus brings this back, especially in the Gospels, because he's talking to the Jews and he says, Gehenna of fire. And they all knew God's going to punish those people who did that, that had already died, and it's going to be a great place of punishment for all the wicked. Not necessarily the valley, but a place like that where there's fire and there's pain. Also, the word Hades, the New Testament uses for the, the idea of hell. The doctrine of hell is, is called the place of Hades. Originally in Greek, the Greeks used the word Hades just to mean the god of the underworld. So when you die, you go to the underworld, and there's a god reigning over there, because in their mind, there was a god reigning everywhere. And you have to go there, and Hades rules over that realm. But during the Koine Greek period, this word starts to become a place of the dead in general, because by the time of the New Testament, many Greeks and Romans aren't really believing in the pagan gods. They go about their sacrifices, and they do what they're supposed to do, but they're more into philosophy, the mind, and, and it's only the common people who still go to the temples and, and go do all of those things. Nine times it's used for physical death, and one time as Hades, and that's in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. So the place of Hades in Luke 16 that we just looked at earlier, that is hell. It's hot, it's burning. He says, can I have some water, just a drop of water, the rich man says, to quench my thirst. It's so hot, the, the idea of flames, fire. Same as the place of Gehenna. This is just later in the New Testament where the idea, as they read it, the Greek world is seeing, oh, Hades. We remember something about Hades. Oh, that's what it is. It's a, it's a place of pain and fire. It's very clear by the end of the New Testament what this is. It's like a lake of fire. It is a place where if you get into a lake of water and you go down into the water, you're surrounded by it. The water is all around you. Well, the lake of fire is like that. It's a place where there's so much fire, you're surrounded by it. And in Revelation 20, it's a final judgment. The, the dead are resurrected and put there. So there's actually not currently people in the lake of fire. First, Satan has to go in and his demons, his angels that followed him. Because that's what it was created for. But along with him will be all those who followed him, which is all those who did not follow Christ. And they will all go into the lake of fire. There's no one in there. They're in, if we wanted to get real technical, they're in this in-between place. Hades, we might call it, like in Luke 16. It is a place where the soul is being tormented and burned, and experiencing these things like the rich man felt. But when they get their resurrected body, it's going to be worse. More experience in the full sense of a resurrected body. One time, 
there's this idea in Second Peter 2.4 of Tartarus. Another word used. So you can see whether it's Hebrew, Gehenna in the New Testament, or these Greek ideas of Hades and Tartarus, that the New Testament is encompassing all these words to give people the picture of eternal judgment and what it will be like. Tartarus was thought by the Greeks to be a subterranean place lower than Hades. It's the worst you could go. It's the place of divine punishment for the Greeks where the worst culprits would go. And so later, regarded in Israelite apocalyptic, these are works that are not biblical, but they were writings that even Jews would write about where people would go to be judged, to Tartarus. So Peter here, like the other apostles, borrow from the Greek concepts of the day to give the picture of a place of holding and there it says the demonic angels are being held there. So the demonic angel, there are certain angels that are already there until the judgment where they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Not all demonic angels. You have to read Second Peter and Jude to get more on that. So where do we get our word hell from in English? Well, hell is an English word. It's not a Greek word. It's, it's not a Hebrew word. It's a, an English word. And it's Anglo-Saxon for the netherworld of the dead. So as the Anglo-Saxons are becoming Christians, how do you translate these ideas into English so they can understand it? Well, they already had a word that sort of fit like Hades and, and Tartarus, this word called hell. And so that gets used in English and eventually makes its way into the King James, which will translate most of the, the occurrences of Sheol, all the ones of Hades in the New Testament, and Gehenna, and even Tartarus as hell. And I mention this because if you run into a universalist, somebody who thinks everybody's going to be saved and there is no hell, they will say to you, they will say, the word hell is not in the Greek New Testament. You see what they just did? The English word hell is not in the Greek New Testament. Well, I hope not. There's a lot of English words that shouldn't be in the Greek New Testament. Because modern English, Middle English and even Old English wasn't even invented yet when the New Testament was written. That's like saying there's no Italian words in the Greek New Testament. It's a non-argument. Of course there's not. The question is one of translation. One of translation. We are translating into English words that we had at the time. But now, as people have come along in the translations... They're trying to go back and, and use some of these words. So you'll see Gehenna in some of the translations today. You'll see Hades. You'll see Lake of Fire in most. And you'll see Tartarus, I think, even in like the NASB and the LSB. That's to help us to see there is a difference. There's different words being used. That's, the, that's your word study on the New Testament teaching on hell. All of these words are there. It's actually worse than the English word hell. The English word hell, we just think of, okay, it's a, it's a place maybe with darkness and fire. When you get into what the, what the Bible actually teaches, according to these Hebrew and Greek words, much, much worse even than we can imagine. Sometimes people will say, well, it's all symbolic. When Jesus says, you know, the, the, the fire which will never be put out, it will continue burning, that's symbolic. I don't think it is. I think he's just giving us a little snapshot, just a piece of, what it will be like. And even if it's symbolic, 
let's just go there for a moment, even if it's symbolic, whenever you have a symbol that represents something, and so even if it was symbolic, the reality is still much worse than the symbol. I don't think it's symbolic. I think he's just giving little snapshots of what it's going to be like, which are scary enough. We don't need to, to have the full picture to believe it. Some people will say, well, I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in this devil with a pitchfork who's in this mythical place with horns and he's poking people with the pitchfork, right? That's what we all grew up with. That's what's in the movies. That's what's in the comic books, the magazines. That's what's in books. This idea that the devil is in hell, reigning over hell, and sometimes even good and, and godly men will, will slip up and use terminology like that, that, that Satan is in hell, torturing people. This is actually a medieval Roman Catholic mythology. The Roman Catholics came up in the Middle Ages with this idea to scare their children, basically, and to being good Catholic children. Because the devil is going to get you. And to show the uneducated and the children, the uneducated adults and the children, what they did is started making these drawings of horned devils, of, of these creatures with horns and teeth and tongues and tails. And they put it in their artwork, in the Bible that they were translating. And they were always making new Bibles with these monks and, and their scribes, and they would put these images all around it. And there's even one called, is it called the Devil's Bible? There's this huge Bible. I think it came from Sweden. It's, it's like this big. And one whole page is this little devil creature squatting with these pitchforks. And so because that is so famous, that little drawing, artwork that they did in the Middle Ages, I think it's called the Devil's Bible, I believe. Here's the truth about hell. God's doing the punishing, not the devil. And the devil is going to be punished too. How can he be poking people with a pitchfork if he's the one suffering and it was created for his suffering, first of all? And so we need to remember that when people try to, I don't believe in hell. Well, what is your idea of hell? Well, this idea that the guy with red suit and a tail and horns stabbing people with a pitchfork. No, no, first of all, that's not true. And secondly, it's much worse, much worse than that. Matthew 25, 41, the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire was specifically designed for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20, 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How can he torment other people? He's the one being tormented. God's not going to let the devil reign in hell. And the punishment is infinitely worse than a pitchfork. That doesn't even comprehend the full punishment that will be there. That's why D.A. Carson said, the gospel is God saving us from God, by God, for God. God's doing the punishment, so when he saves somebody, he's actually saving them from his wrath, and he's doing all the work, so it's by God. That's really amazing. John Piper wrote this little book. I think it's called The Gospel of God. And it, it opens up this idea. It's, it's all about God from beginning to end. It's not Satan is an equal force fighting against God and yin and yang, back and forth. No, no. Remember last week, the devil is, whose devil? God's devil. He created Satan. Now, he did not force Satan to fall. That was Satan's choice. But he still has sovereign control over Satan the demons, 
and all things. And when, if you read the book of Job, you get the idea that when things happen that the devil does, it's because God lets the leash out for a trial, for a test, for a tribulation. Uh, more on that, more on tribulations in today's sermon. Even when talking about salvation and judgment, there's many views, even within Christianity. And I use Christianity very loosely here. I would like it if we define Christianity according to the Bible. But unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. They get to define, today's world anyway, they, they try to define their own meanings of words. And it's been like this somewhat in church history. And so there's disagreements on how people are saved. Who, who is saved? And is there even a hell? I mean, these are the three that, that go in a line here. How are people saved? Is it by works? A lot of people teach that. A lot of religions teach that. A lot of so-called Christian cults teach that. Who gets to be saved? Well, that's a big question with our modern uh, world, with our Western world. Who is actually saved? That's a, that became a really famous question a few years ago, which I'll show you in a minute. Is there even a hell? We must seek to understand what the Bible teaches on these issues, give an answer for these attacks, it's important to know what the person we're talking to really believes on salvation, hell, and judgment. We're not in the 1950s South where when you start a conversation with somebody, they probably have heard of God. They probably know some scripture. They probably understand who God is to some extent. They probably understand the teaching out there on Jesus. They understand they're a sinner. That's why in the 50s and, and even in the 60s and, and before that, even if people weren't truly saved, they had a sense of that. And based on social, moral constructs, they would try to live what they called a, a good life. You know, a Benjamin Franklin kind of moral life. After that, though, we see what's happened today is that you don't know when you're starting the conversation what they already know. And most of the time we're assuming they know a lot more. Oh, it's Texas. Of course you know who God is, who Jesus is, what the Bible says about them. And the way to get saved. I just need to reinforce that. They might not understand any of this. They may have been taught completely the opposite. You've got to figure out where you're starting in this discussion with them. And that's where you ask them questions. You don't believe in hell? Well, what do you, what do you think hell is? What's your definition of it? Where do you come up with that concept? All right. First of all, here's, here's the true teaching of Scripture. Gospel exclusivism. There's going to be three words here we're going to talk about when it comes to who is saved. Gospel exclusivism. This means you must have a conscious faith. We're not talking here about the issue of children who die in infancy. That's, that's a separate issue. But we're talking about adults and children who are old enough to understand, especially as we move into the teenage years, they can have a conscious faith. They know what's being said. They can understand the gospel. Even the the Smallest child often can understand something about the gospel. A conscious faith in the gospel. The gospel is what? It's the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know that the Bible prophesied that. It's anticipated, it's developed, and it's presented in Holy Scripture. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. I think we looked at that either in this class or a recent sermon. We went to 1 Corinthians 15, and he lays out, this is primarily what I want you to know. The gospel, the good news. And he says, first, and he talks about that the Christ died on the cross according to the scriptures. 
And then it says he was buried and raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's about as much in a nutshell as we can put the Gospel. We could say more, and you might have an opportunity to do that. But that's 1 Corinthians 15. You can start in verse 1, but it's, it's basically 2 through 4. The Gospel in a nutshell. You could say more. Keep coming to church and learning and going through books of the Bible so you know how to say more. But that's the two main points. And then you would say to somebody, uh, if you trust in Him, if you have faith, then you can be saved. You will be saved. You will be justified. You can decide where to go from there. John 14, 6. Very clear here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not one single person, comes to the Father but through me. That includes all the people in the Old Testament that were saved. That includes all the Gentiles that trusted in the Messiah. That's the only way. That's why it's exclusive. Exclusive means only these people are getting in. Not because they're good, not because they say they're Christian, not because they go to church, because they've trusted in Christ alone. Acts 16. After he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Philippian jailer. What do they say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They don't say, go back to the pagan gods of Greece and just live your best life. God will acknowledge that. They don't say, work for it and believe. Just believe in the Lord Jesus. They don't say, claim to believe with your, with your mouth, but go on living the same old life. They, they talk about believe in the sense of trusting fully in the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, on which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Man, I want to know what this gospel is, Paul, because he preached it. It was the one they accepted and were believed, were made believers, and which also you stand, stand firm in the faith, and the one which by you are saved. And then he goes on to define what that is. It comes down to the, the death, and resurrection of Christ, and our response to that. So that's exclusivism. Salvation comes only through Christ. There is one type, though, that some people say, church exclusivism. Okay, fine, it's only through Christ, and it can only occur through one church, the Roman Catholic Church. This was the official teaching. I, I think they've lightened it up and modified it a little bit in Vatican II, right? But from the Middle Ages through Vatican II, you could not be saved according to official doctrinal teaching of the Catholic Church unless you were part somehow part of the Roman Catholic Church, took part in the Mass, got baptized as an infant, and so on. This is the one universal church, the Pope said in 1302, of the faithful, outside of which there is absolutely no salvation. There's no other way to be saved. He said, unless you are part of the church, and that's Christ's church, he said. Now that got weakened a bit in Vatican II and they allowed for Muslims, Jews, and others to also be saved. Special revelation, exclusivism. Now this should, this should resonate with you. The person must hear the gospel unless God chooses to send them special revelation in an extraordinary way. By direct revelation from the Lord, dream, vision, miracle, or angelic message. Let's go back to that one then. Okay, so this, the, the last part might sound a little funny, but think about the people in the Bible. When Paul's going down the road to Damascus, he had the Old Testament, but he had ignored it. He had made it legalistic. 
Jesus shows up in person. Boom, Paul's saved. So that's what it's talking about. Revelation from the Lord, dreams, visions, miracles, angelic message. In the time of the New Testament. Okay? But special revelation is the Word of God. That's all we're talking about. Today it's through Scripture. I'll show you the, the passage on that. But before the Bible was complete, there were these other ways that God spoke directly through these different things. And then another view is pluralism. Pluralism says all major religions are equally valid and all lead to God. This is pluralism. This is loved by our Western world today. It's loved by America, 52%. And this big study in 2008 on what happens after death, 52% of Christians thought that at least some non-Christian faiths can lead to eternal life. That some other religions would get there as well. So it looks like this. Well, Christianity is one path, but there's lots of paths, they say. Hinduism can get you there. Buddhism can get you there. Taoism can get you there. Islam can get you there. Judaism can get you there. Christianity is just one of many ways. That is not offensive to anybody because if you don't like Christianity, you can just pick another way. It's like going to the grocery store, right? You don't like one brand. If there's another brand, you can pick that. And that is the American way right there. Options, options, options. In fact, we have so many options. Sometimes people just don't buy anything because they're so confused on all the options. And that happens with religious beliefs. It's like, well, if they're all true, then what does it even matter? I don't even want to choose. It takes too much work to figure it out. And if it, basically, if they're all true, then you don't have to do anything. That, that's true as well, and you can go to God in heaven. So how do we answer that? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Okay, so, so don't worship other gods. That's what other religions are about. Again, John 14, 6. I mean, this is the verse you need to have memorized as a Christian and as a, an apologist. John 4, 22, you worship what you do not know. So he meets a Samaritan woman and she's sort of mixed in. The, the Samaritans had mixed in Judaism there's some truths, of course, obviously in the Old Testament. They, they took some truths out of there and they shoved it into their pagan mixture. The people that the Assyrians had brought into the area of Galilee and Samaria and they mixed it all together. You can read about that in, in First and Second Kings. And he says, look, you're worshiping, but it's, you don't even understand what, what your worship is about. You don't understand who you're worshiping. We worship what we know. We have, we have knowledge and, and that leads to salvation. And that comes out of the Jews because they have the Old Testament promises and the covenant with Abraham. Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else. No one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And he's not just saying at that time, there, there's none at all. There's no other way to be saved. That's how we answer pluralism. There was a famous book that came out in 2011, I think. Was it 11? Come on, who bought it? Nobody? Okay, I think I got it on Kindle for free or something, just to do stuff like this. A famous book that came out, Rob Bell, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Up until this point, Rob Bell was, he was seeker-friendly. He was on the edge. After this book came out, even his very on-the-edge church ended up firing him, and he got a show. He got to come on Oprah. He, he now has church on his surfboard. He doesn't call it church. He's all over the place, but this made big waves, and a lot of people defended this guy. So I want you to listen to what he had to say. He, he holds to universalism. 
Now, he didn't say it in the book. He was too chicken to say it in the book. For the record, that's a heretical teaching universalism. This divided a lot of people back in the day because they, they took up for him and they said, well, he's just asking questions. But you, can, you get the idea where he's going with the questions. And that's why his book opens up and, and basically denies hell. But he does it very subtly and, and then people are taking up for him. Then he goes later and just says, I don't believe any of it. And all those who took up for him suddenly slinked away and didn't say anything. That's heretical. That's a damnable heresy, meaning it will send you to eternal damnation to deny who God is. Did you see how he said, just a few people? Just a few people? He kept, he kept saying that that teaching, in other words, is, is not right. Just a few people, he said. Will be. Well, there's going to be multitudes of multitudes. But in relation to the billions, well, the, the road is what? That leads to destruction. It's wide. Why is it wide? What is Jesus saying there? There's a lot of people on the road. It's very easy. And there's everybody's taking it. And the few who find it, he said, the few are on the narrow path, narrow gate. And so we have to go with the Bible. And I show you that because that was a huge book in evangelical Christianity. It caused a lot of other books to be written against it. But for the record and for the recording, heretical teaching. All right, how do we answer them? Universalists say God is all loving and therefore all will be saved. All things will be restored. Well, I would ask the person, what do you mean by God is all loving? Which love are you talking about? Are you talking about the love within the Trinity? Are you talking about the love of his creation, like the sparrows and the, and the rain that he talks about? Are you talking about his salvific love to the fallen world? That's really what they're talking about, that God will save everybody. Are you talking about the love for his elect, which is mentioned in Ephesians 1 and 1 John 4? Are you talking about the love based on the obedience of his elect? There are verses that speak about how God shows his love to his people like a father shows his love to his children when they obey. Not, sa not saving love. They're already saved. Now they're obedient and he is showing love to them as a result. So the Bible talks about how there's all kinds of different love. What, is it, what are you talking about? God's all loving. I would agree. God loves his creation. He created it very good. He loves it. There's not a sparrow that falls that, that God does not know and, and does not sovereignly control. Not a drop of rain that gets poured out even on the unbeliever that God is not sovereign over. Yes, he loves his creation. And that includes his people, all of his creation. But he has a special love, a saving love for the people that he has elected, for those he redeems, for those that Christ died for. So the Bible is very clear on that. So sure, God is love, but he is holy, righteous, faithful, wrathful. All these other perfections that are describing him in the Bible. We cannot just single out love and make it what we want. This is what I would be trying to tell the person that I'm talking to. John 79, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of these whom you have given me. So universalists say God is all powerful and patient, wanting all to be saved. That's what they try to use, 1 Timothy 2.4. They say, therefore, everyone will ultimately be saved. Every knee, not new, but every knee shall confess. That's the verse they like. Every knee shall confess. They think confess means everyone will be saved. They don't understand that in the ancient world, you bowed the knee to the king whether you wanted to or not. When, when Nebuchadnezzar said, everybody bow to the statue, I'm sure there are a lot of people who didn't like it, but they did it anyway. 
except for those who are faithful to God. Where in the Bible does it say God's patience is eternal? That's a question you can ask. Oh, you say God's patient. Is it eternal in the sense that he will never punish? Or are there verses that say, for now, God has been patient with you, waiting for you to repent? It seems like there's a verse in Romans 2 on that very issue. Why can't God also express his sovereignty in sending some to hell? Isn't that sovereignty? Isn't that a love for righteousness, for justice? How powerful is God if he does not punish the wicked? What's the judgment that Jesus is talking about? Oh, you don't like Paul? Well, what about Jesus? He talks about hell quite a bit. Do you like Jesus? If they're, you know, what we might call a progressive liberal Christian. What about Revelation? What's the wrath spoken of there? Why did Christ have to be crucified if everyone is going to be saved? I mean, if someone is, is admitting, look, I'm a Christian, Jesus was crucified, but I don't believe in judgment in hell, then why did Christ even die? Paul uses that argument a lot. The Bible uses that. Well, why is this even the case? Why is evangelism needed? It's really hard for a universalist to talk about evangelism. Why do mission work at all? Universalism sounds a lot like Satan in Genesis 3. You surely will not die. Come on, eat the fruit. Nothing's going to happen. Well, that's what she believed, and it, it went bad for her and all of humanity. You could say, what's the lake of fire in Revelation 20? Now, if they don't care about the Bible, they're not going to care about that question, but somebody who at least professes something about Christianity. What about the 12 times Gehenna is mentioned in the New Testament? What about Matthew 25, 41? Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. Now, I've had debates with the universalists, and, and they'll say, well, that's not eternal. It's a temporary fire. Well, the word means eternal. Well, no, sometimes it can mean long ages. Well, what about the same word described for God? Well, that means eternal. Oh, so it's eternal for God, but it's not eternal. What about eternal in life in heaven? Oh, yeah, it's eternal there. What about the same verse that uses the word eternal for judgment? Eternal judgment, eternal life. Some will go here and some will go here. You know, there's two verses in the Bible that describe that. You can't change the word in the middle of the sentence unless the context really strongly shows that. Here it is. Those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is usually where they'll stop arguing and try to quote some universalist from the 1800s or something. Kind of like we might quote out of a commentary. But it's really hard for them. This verse is really hard. Daniel 12.2 is also really hard. Here again, John 14.6. Memorize it. Luke 13. Don't have time for that one, but look it up. Luke 13.23-28. Okay, so this is a new one, and we don't even have time, but I want to tease you with it so you'll make sure and be here next week, not go on vacation or anything, or not go to the Reformation celebration and then be too tired the next morning to come to class. You've got to come for this one. Inclusivism. The belief that anyone can be saved through Christ by the Spirit. Oh, that sounds good. Without having conscious saving faith. Now, that's the bad part. In other words, you're going to heaven and you don't know it. It's your lucky day. And it's all, it's all it's Christ's death on the cross. It's Christ who does it. It's the Spirit who works in you. Everything has happened. And we're not talking about babies who die here. We're talking about adult people that know and can think and all of that. If you're good in another religion, God will save you. Can be saved if they respond to God through seeing enough of who he is in general revelation. 
So this is many evangelicals, many people who say they're gospel-believing Christians. Hold this. It's inclusivism. It's, it's inclusive. It's not exclusive, only those who trust in Christ. It's not universal, everybody. But it's, it's a few people, but it's people who don't even know Jesus. And others say it's through other world religions. So some say, you look out there, oh, wow, God made this world. I'm going to study it. I'm going to focus on science and philosophy. And God will respond and he will save me. And then other world religions as well. Anybody know who, who's that? John MacArthur and Billy Graham. He didn't always say it, but it was in his writings. And he was on national television and he talked about inclusivism. So come back next week and we'll start there. There's your cliffhanger. Lord, we do thank you for the word. It is what makes things clear to us. We're not here boasting in ourselves. We're here boasting in your word. We're here glorifying, exalting, rejoicing in scripture. Lord, we're still learning. We're still studying. But we need to have the essentials down, Lord. We need to know that judgment is coming for those who are not in Christ. And there is a hell, and it's a real place of eternal punishment. And I pray that we might understand it so much that it makes us tell others the gospel. It drives us to missions. It drives us to evangelize. Help us to have a real love for the lost. We ask that you would do this for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.